today we're with Dr. Yezer. He is a professor of pathology at the universities of Pittsburgh, Southern Denmark, and Tel Aviv. Thank you so much for talking to EMIGCAST today. Dr. Yezer, I was wondering if you would help us by first talking about why you started to work in transfusion medicine. Yeah, sure, Ben. Well, thanks a lot for inviting me. Um, and it's great to uh, be able to talk to uh, emerging emerge medicine docs, uh, because I think this whole blood is here to stay, and uh, it's really going to improve your, um, your life and life of your patients, I hope. But uh, I got into pathology. Um, I thought I was going to be an internal medicine like hematologist, like seeing patients and stuff. But there was this afternoon where I had a choice of going to like some rounds where they weren't serving any food or going down to the pathology lab to look at a peripheral blood film. So obviously I went to the look at the blood film and um, I was talking to the pathologist and he was telling me about like all the cells we were looking at and, and, and stuff. And I thought, yeah, this is good. I, I, I want to learn more about this. And and then I discovered there was this thing called, in Canada anyway, called hematopathology, which was um, not like uh, here. Uh, here, hematopathology is mostly like lymph nodes and stuff up there. It's transfusion, coagulation, and a lot of um, looking at bone marrow slides and peripheral blood films and that kind of thing. And I thought that, that transfusion would be an area that there's a lot of research, like a lot of questions that were unanswered, and a lot of practice that was just kind of the way it was since... Lance Steiner discovered the ABO group. Um, and so I thought this would be a really cool um, area. And I didn't actually think about like how I would be able to even get a job or anything because, you know, who thinks about that, right? <laughs> and so um, so I got lucky that there was this job advertised in uh, Pittsburgh. And I thought that uh, there's no chance they're going to hire a resident from Edmonton who hasn't done a fellowship. But if I get, you know, if they offer me at least the interview, then I would go watch the Penguins and, uh, you know, just have a nice weekend in Pittsburgh. And yeah, like, and incredibly, they did hire me the job or offer me the job. And so, uh, so here I am. And how long ago was that? That was 17 years ago. Wow. Yeah. That's an incredible story. I had a lot more hair at the beginning. <laughs> so uh, going back to whole blood, what is the history of using whole blood and uh, why do you think there's been a sudden resurgence in interest in whole blood? Well, when you think about it, whole blood was like the original transfusion product, right? Like the first transfusion um, in France, Jean-Baptiste Denis was treating a 14-year-old boy who was having a fever and, and manic episodes. And, and his donor was a sheep because sheeps are calm and tranquil. And they wanted this kid to be really calm and tranquil, which is pretty much guaranteed after you get a few mils of sheep blood in you. Um, but, um, you know, then, then, then we fast forward to, to the, the first world war and it was just the easiest thing to collect was, you know, we knew, um, about abiotypes. We knew about, uh, citrate to keep the blood liquid. We knew that you could put it in glass for a while, keep it cool. Uh, but we didn't really know that if you spun it, you could make different components from the blood, right? Like the plasma, the platelets and the red cells. So all they were transfusing was whole blood. Uh, because that's all they really knew about. It turns out it was the right move. They just didn't know why it was. Um, and, and whole blood remained the main military blood transfusion product uh, for many years. Because in that context, it makes a lot of sense. You're having a massive bleed. You don't want to have to schlep around plasma platelets and red cells. You have it all in one bag, a bottle at the time. And 
Uh, and that's really the way it was um, until we discovered centrifuging, until we discovered the ability to make plasma platelets and red cells. And then the industry sort of pivoted towards components. And, and it made sense because we were having innovations in, in cancer treatment, uh, innovations um, in, uh, well, in, in, we, we knew that there were these different products and we could store them differently under different conditions, like the red cells in the fridge, the platelets at room temperature, and the plasma frozen until you needed it. Um, and so we thought that we would be really doing our patients a favor by sort of providing them with a bespoke product. And, and we are, you know, for the hematology patients, they need platelets. You don't need whole blood in that situation. They need platelets. So we give them platelets. Um, but it became the, the standard way to provide blood products was as individual components rather than um, in, in, one, in one bag. And so what, what, what we're seeing now um, is this sort of return to where we started, right? At least for massively bleeding patients, um, this idea that they're bleeding whole blood, so we should give them whole blood, um, is a very sort of just logical entry into using it. Um, and, and now we're starting to actually see some some evidence come out to to show that it's um, it's it's a useful thing to do. And could you talk a little bit about the origins of that resurgence and the transition to maybe away from components back to whole blood, especially that now major trauma centers are using it? Sure. You know, it's, it's, it's pretty recent. You know, I went to the, um, the Thor meeting, that's thrombosis, hemostasis, and oxygenation research meeting. Um, it's headed by Phil Spinella and Gare Strandinus. Um, and I went there because it was in Norway, and they invited me. So I thought, this could be really good. Um, you know, and this was back in the days, this was like, I think, 2014 or 15, when we were really just sort of getting our heads around this idea of balanced blood product resuscitation, right? Some people call it one to one to one or whatever, but it's a fixed ratio. And, you know, back then we were having these arguments about, well, what is the right ratio? You know, uh, how much should we, should we be providing? Um, and that, that was kind of the level of the discussion, um, which was all new at the time. And it was, a, you know, reasonable discussion to be having, but that's sort of where we were. And then at the meeting, this idea of, of using whole blood was sort of floated. And I know that the Mayo Clinic had started to use whole blood a little bit um, uh, at, 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 at that time, but nobody had really sort of embraced it. And, and, and I went into that meeting thinking that this is ridiculous, right? Why would we do this? We have these components, right? We're going to give group O red cells, no hemolysis there. We're going to give AB plasma, no chance of hemolysis and, and, you know, whatever the platelets are. Why would we want to give a product that's that we know is going to be incompatible with like 15% of our recipients, those who are B or AB um, or, or group uh, group A actually. So that's like, you know, that's almost like 55% of the of the recipients. It's going to be compatible with everybody who's not group O. So I was just, I was really skeptical and I thought this is really a bad idea. Um, and I went to the meeting with that attitude. And interestingly, what kind of changed my mind um, was listening to the army medics at this presentation, uh, at this at this meeting. They were presenting about their experience transfusing injured soldiers, and you know they're talking about doing all these like frankly amazing things um, under fire on a hillside. And I'm thinking to myself, oh my gosh, I'd never thought about that. 
uh, I'd never even been to a civilian trauma resuscitation like in the eMERGE. And I never really thought that, like, that, 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 that hanging three units could be, um, like, three different components could be, like, even a hassle. You know, obviously, I'm in transfusion, so everything around me is about transfusion. And transfusion is obviously the number one most important thing in the resuscitation, right? <laughs> so, you know, I, I'm kidding, right? I mean, you have so many other things to think about in, in your um, resuscitating of the patient. And it, it just, it all just came together for me. And I was like, this is fantastic. How can we... Um, implement this. And so I started actually going to carrying the trauma pager and going to the resuscitations. And I just kind of sat back and watched the the chaos or what it looked like chaos to me uh, of, of resuscitating. And all these products are coming and these people are running in, all this was going on. I thought, yeah, you know, in transfusion, we really have to do something to help out our colleagues here in, in the emerge and trauma surgery to, to help them get this balanced ratio because it was so, I mean, once I saw it, it became obvious to me why it's difficult to give balanced resuscitation because, you know, you can't really be sure how many red cells you just gave the patient because uh, they're going in these rapid infusers and, you know, it's easy to, to, to get behind, right? It's easy to forget the platelets. It's easy to not administer as much plasma as you think you're giving. And at that time, there was just liters of crystalloid flowing into these patients, right? Which we know is, is, is the wrong thing to do. And so really, it, it was like um, a really eye-opening experience for me to have gone, to have heard the army medics talking, and to have seen the trauma resuscitations, even at my own um, level one hospital. And then I realized, yeah, this is, this is important. So we need to do some work on this. Um, and at the time, there wasn't a lot of literature. In fact, I think it was only... That one um, um, uh, randomized trial from from Texas with Brian Cotton, where they used um, uh, leuco reduced whole blood that also removed the platelets, and so they were giving whole blood that was without platelets, and so after every six units of whole blood, they would add in a warm stored platelet, and that was, at the time I think that was really the only trial that looked at using um, what they called modified whole blood versus components. And in a secondary analysis, there was a benefit to it. Um, and I thought, well, and, and at the time they were using AVO identical whole blood. That's a big thing, right? So they could get the patient's AVO type quickly and they could provide uh, whole blood. I think they had O and A whole blood. Um, and if the patient was something else, then they would just get components. So, you know, I, I could see that this could be done. I could see that there was um, maybe some benefit from doing it uh, in terms of like, uh, survival outcome or reduction in the number of blood products, but really this this simplifying the logistics of the resuscitation it it really just hit me like wow you guys have a hard job and uh, we need to make we in transfusion need to make your life easier and so I think this whole blood um, uh, is, is is really going to do that so that was like it was like in June and then came back to Pittsburgh and talked to. Uh, my boss about it, who was supportive of the idea. And then by December, we were doing this on a routine basis. That was 2014. Oh, wow. So transitioning to using whole blood wasn't uh, too significant of a process? Well, the other thing that helped was our trauma surgeons wanted it. So they were already way ahead of me uh, in terms of their thinking about um, blood product resuscitation and um, how they wanted to do it. And, and they were sort of pushing us even before this meeting. But, you know, I, I remember 
talking to my boss and he was like, yeah, they want this group O whole blood thing. And I'm like, well, can you imagine that we would have to titer both the anti A and the anti B and make sure they're both low titer? <laughs> Forget it. And, you know, we had a good laugh and we thought, boy, that's pie in the sky stuff. But really, like I say, for me, everything changed at that meeting. Um, and particularly hearing those those army medics like telling their story, that was to me eye opening. And um, and so um, it didn't take us a very long time to to implement it because um, we have a very good, um, very forward thinking uh, um, blood uh, collector here. Um, the people were really keen to try something new. They validated the filter really quickly. And we institutionalized it um, pretty quickly as well. But I, I think the reason, the main reason for that was because um, everybody was pointing in, in the same direction. The surgeons wanted it, anesthesia wanted it, and and then finally the blood bank uh, wanted to provide this as well. Um, and you know, the other thing that's that's you know important to remember is that whole blood. There's nothing special about it, really. I mean, this is the stuff that that you donate every day. Right. I mean, you put the needle in the arm and out comes whole blood. Um, and so this is not a new product for the blood center. Um, it does have some logistical issues about having to titer it and collecting it only from, from males. But I mean, this is what they do daily. So this is not like they have to, like, have a new uh, machine to help make this thing or some bizarre storage condition that they've never seen before. This is like the easiest thing, really. Um that, 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 that they collect. So uh, in the sense that we were not having to reinvent the wheel uh, or even invent the wheel, um, it, it wasn't very difficult to, to implement it. And so on that note, go, transitioning to whole blood, which you say is like the basic thing that you first get uh, from the blood bank, what are some of the drawbacks and limitations to using whole blood and transitioning away from some of these other blood products? Well, you know, I think one of the main, uh, I think there's several uh, limitations uh, to, to using whole blood um, in, in, in sort of the current instantiation or the, the current rebirth of, of uh, or renaissance of, of, of whole blood. Um, one is that it has to be available from the blood supplier. Um, interestingly, not everyone, not every hospital's blood supplier uh, is willing or can or whatever uh, to, to, to produce whole blood. Um, I think most of the major suppliers will provide it, uh, but you know we just did a, a survey of, of level one um, uh, trauma centers, and, uh, and we had about 105 or so respondents, and, and there were several who uh, said that the reason they couldn't implement whole blood is because they just couldn't get it, and I think that's a real shame because as we as we just said, this is like the fundamental uh, donation um, product. So uh, I find that. Um, I find that a very unfortunate answer, and I think that's something that needs to be uh, resolved between the hospital and and their blood supplier. Um, they should be able to to provide it. The other issue is uh, is is sort of on the hospital, and there has to be this comfort with transfusing potentially incompatible plasma. Uh, you know, like I say, unless the the patient is group O, the plasma will be incompatible with the recipient um, because as you know group o whole blood has anti-a and anti-b antibodies in it and these are very um, hemolytic antibodies that can be hemolytic antibodies you know we talk about mistransfusions like if you give an a red cell to an o recipient they'll 
you know, they're going to have a bad outcome. So, I mean, it's those antibodies, right? And so the hospital has to um, get over their fear of transfusing incompatible plasma. And of course, the way we can mitigate that risk is by using a low titer of, of anti-A and anti-B. And in fact, the blood bank regulatory excuse me, agency, the AABB, requires the hospital to pick their whatever the hospital thinks is, is a sufficiently low titer, 50, 100, really anything less than 256. Uh, in my opinion, uh, is safe. Um, and and so you pick a low titer unit and you determine which patients can receive it, generally patients who are having a massive bleed. Um, and and you, you, you can put a limit on the number of whole blood units that the patients can receive. Um, some institutions don't have a limit and that's perfectly acceptable if they're comfortable transfusing dozens of units, that's great. Uh, at my institution, because we were one of the first to start using it, we started with two units and then we measured the, um, the, the, to see if there was hemolysis happening in, in these patients. There wasn't, so we went to four. Now we're up to eight units. And we started to do this even at the Children's Hospital, too. So, <clears throat> so I think the limitations are twofold. One is on the supply side, and the other is on the uh, hospital end, where, where this sort of um, theoretically, you know, theoretically dangerous situation, which has not been borne out in practice, is is an obstacle. The the other obstacle that, that I sometimes encounter, where people will say, "Well, I get my components fast enough," you know, like when I'm doing my resuscitation, my hospital has a massive transfusion protocol. I get the red cells, plasma, platelets, components uh, quickly, and I transfuse them, um, you know, in in the right order at the right time, and and all that. And to those people. Uh, I say that's great if that's actually happening. Um, we did a study at our children's hospital, which has a massive transfusion protocol, and it has plasma and red cells in the refrigerator in the emergency room. Um, and we asked the question, how long does it take for a trauma patient to receive just one unit each of plasma, platelets, and red cells? Really? And in some cases, it took hours to get all, yeah. So the patients might have had 10 red cells and 10, 10 plasma units. They might have had that quickly, but maybe the, the platelet came two hours later. So just how long did it take to get just one unit? It took hours in some cases to get it. With whole blood, it's guaranteed instant. As soon as you start the transfusion, you're getting a balanced resuscitation. So that's why we have whole blood in the emergency rooms as well. We want that to be the first component used. So, you know, I, I, I think to, to, to say to the hospitals that, that, um, that, think that they're getting their, their components fast enough. I hope you are, but I suggest that you measure it. You know, have a look. How long does it take to actually get one unit in uh, of each product? And you might be surprised at, at how you think you're getting uh, the, the platelets in, but, but you're not. Um, and, and whole blood will help you to overcome that. And there are other issues too, you know, like some, sometimes cost is an issue depending on how the blood center uh, you know, charges um, for it, um, uh, and there might be issues of wastage, you know, because it is a fairly bespoke product, right? It, it is a whole blood unit, and you really wouldn't want to administer this to anybody who isn't having um, a massive bleed. Um, you know, like a, a hematology oncology patient who needs platelets shouldn't be getting whole blood. That's uh, not the right use of it. So you might have a refrigerator full of this stuff, and and, and maybe no traumas happen at your hospital during the week. And, 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 and so there's fears of wastage. But again, I think even that those fears can be mitigated because 
uh, either the hospital itself or the blood center can take the whole blood unit and spin it and make a red cell unit from it. And, and, and that red cell can have, um, uh, can, can be transfused like as a red cell to any recipient. And it's going to be group O and it could well be leukoreduced. So it's pretty easy to, to use those units. So, you know, I think those are the main limitations and, and all of which uh, can be overcome <clears throat> if, if there's a, a desire to do that. We've talked a lot about the use of whole blood in the hospital setting, but could you talk a little bit about the use of whole blood in the pre-hospital setting? Yeah, sure. Well, this is this is the beauty of whole blood, right? I mean, so we know from a variety of different studies that um, pre-hospital transfusion is really important, right? I mean, um, in patients who have prolonged transport times to the hospital, more than 20 minutes, it's really important that they get uh, at least plasma, uh, uh, and, and preferentially all the, the, the components if they're having a bleed. You know, we saw from the Denver study, the combat study, that if they can get to the hospital really quickly, um, then the plasma isn't, uh, plasma in the pre-hospital setting isn't really, um, that, that important. Uh, but if it takes more than 20 minutes to, to get to the hospital, you need plasma. Um, and, and a great way to provide that would be in, in, in whole blood. And, you know, probably you've been in the, um, the helicopters and, and you've looked in the ambulances and, and they're packed, right? I mean, they're, they're, there's not a lot of extra room uh, in, in those vehicles. And so to take with you plasma platelets and red cells, that's, a, that's an imposition, right? I mean, the plasma and the red cells are kept in like the cool temperature and the platelets are at room temperature. So now you have two different storage conditions, which means you're going to have to, you can't keep them in the same place. You're going to have to remember to use them. All the same issues uh, that we have in the hospital will, will, will occur in the pre-hospital setting too, unless you have the whole blood, which is kept in the cold. So we already know how to transport it. You know, the thing is about 570 ml. So it's not all that much bigger than a red cell unit. So it's not going to take up that much more space or weight. And when you start infusing it, you'll get, balanced resuscitation um, from the beginning. So I think, I think in the right patients, which is increasingly turning out to be uh, trauma patients with brain injury uh, who have a prolonged uh, transport time to the hospital, or, or if someone is going to be at the scene um, for a prolonged period, maybe they're in a, in a car wreck or something and, and, and they can't be removed uh, from the car for a while, so they have to be managed on the scene that's, I mean, that's all pre-hospital. This is uh, an evidence-based recommendation uh, that, that's going to help improve uh, survival. I wanted to ask you, as, as we're finishing up here, what further questions do you think need to be investigated regarding the use of whole blood? Yeah, you know, just, just to get back to the pre-hospital thing, I, I think the real model for, for us uh, in, in the States and, and around the world is what the guys in San Antonio were doing with the, um, the brothers in arms programs. Maybe you're familiar with that. I mean, these guys have whole blood everywhere in the ambulances, in the, in the helicopter bases at their hospitals. I don't think you can get too far away from civilization in San Antonio and not have whole blood near you if you need it. Um, the way that they recycle the, the whole blood reduces wastage I think what they're doing there is really excellent and really ought to be the model for, for how we structure uh, pre-hospital resuscitation. Um, and, and so I, uh, I think that, I think it can be done. It can be done very successfully. And I think it's, like I say, now it's evidence-based. 
but in terms of the in terms of the outstanding questions to answer about whole blood um, you know the question that's on everyone's mind is does this improve survival compared to component therapy right so so you know the advantages of whole blood are numerous and include you know things like um, smaller volume less of that um, preservative solution um, that keeps the blood uh, liquid uh, and, and the red cells fed um, and and of course you get the cold store platelets with the with the whole blood um, so the question is does this translate into improved survival and the studies that have been done up to now uh, generally retrospective studies have shown um, a mixed bag of, 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 of results um, some of the studies have indeed shown improved mortality outcomes um, and, and others have, have not shown that um, primarily I think because these are typically smaller studies uh, and they're retrospective in nature um, in fact there's been a there's been a flurry uh, of studies recently retrospective uh, uh, studies one was a data mining study of the TQIP uh, trauma quality improvement something database you guys probably know better than I do uh, and they you know and the patients in that study had one unit of whole blood on average um, and, and and there were very significant improvements in uh, not only mortality but but adverse events you know I think that that's um, I think that's great that it points us in the right direction of, of, of showing that there could be some some benefit to giving the whole blood but really what we need is a randomized trial uh, to to prove that this is in fact a mortality benefit um, but but aside from that even if whole blood doesn't show a mortality benefit and 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 if you think about it it really is a lot to pin on the whole blood isn't it i mean when you think about all that happens in trauma and all the surgeries and all the other interventions that happen to identify one component and say well, this is the one that's going to improve mortality i think that's a, it's a it might not be the most relevant um, um, outcome right certainly 24-hour mortality i think that, that that's a relevant outcome for whole blood reduction in other components uh, providing balanced resuscitation. Um, I think those are, are sort of other endpoints that, that, that could be very helpful um, in showing that whole blood is beneficial. But the other things are like these intangible things like, um, you know, if you as a, a trauma surgeon or ED physician, um, you know, find that your life is easier because you've got the whole blood, right? I mean, if you find that your, 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 uh, the logistics of your resuscitation are easier because you know when you hang the unit you don't have to think about what the ratio is or am I getting behind in the plasma that's really important right so so it's hard to put a value on that um, the way it is to to quantify 24-hour or six-hour mortality but really if we if we make your life easier then to me that's a big win uh, and, and I think that's really important as well um, I think the things that are pretty settled at the moment uh, is is the serological safety of giving the whole blood meaning um, in the quantities that, that that many people are using it which is you know between five to ten units uh, I think it's pretty clear that there that there's no risk of, of hemolysis to to the recipients you know that that these patients are not um, going to start having hemolytic reactions um, and that's and that like I say gets back to the one of the barriers of implementing whole blood uh, which is some some places are afraid that that might happen, and certainly in our experience and that of others, um, there's no reason to think that that is well. There is reason to to show that it's not happening, um, and and I think that's that's pretty settled. You know, when you start transfusing 20 or 30 units, you know that's a lot of incompatible plasma. But at the same time, 
that patient's in, in real trouble, right? If they're getting that much uh, transfusion, if they need that many units. Um, and, and at that point, it becomes difficult to tell, well, was that really a hemolytic reaction or was that, you know, their hemodynamic instability or, or their TBI? I mean, it's difficult to, uh, at that point, to, to, to put the blame for, um, uh, you know, hypotension and, and that sort of thing on, on, on a hemolytic reaction. Plus, the markers that we use aren't, aren't particularly specific for hemolysis. So, um, you know, when you, get, when you get into higher numbers like that, it's hard to say. But certainly in, in the smaller numbers that, that, that we've shown and that others have shown between, say, you know, five to, to eight or ten units, yeah, there's, there's no reason to think that hemolysis is going to happen. And I'm like really looking forward to seeing how whole blood transforms emergency medicine and all these fields that use blood transfusions. And I was just curious if there's anything else you would like to add to our discussion before we bring it to a close. Sure. You know, the other thing to, to remember is that whole blood has been particularly well studied uh, in trauma. Most of the studies look at trauma patients because that was the sort of original intent of using whole blood. But now I think what we need to do is look beyond trauma patients and look to see is there benefit uh, for anyone in the hospital who's having a massive bleed um, of, of really any ideology. Because, you know, you can argue, of course, that a GI bleeding patient or somebody who's on ECMO and it's going wrong have, has different physiology. But at the same time, at some level, a bleeding patient is a bleeding patient, right? And, and at some point, if you're just going to give all three components anyway, why not just use the whole blood? And so I think it's time that we expanded the use of whole blood beyond just the trauma patients and really into anyone who needs a massive um, uh, resuscitation. And, and, and we've done that in, in Pittsburgh and I know other centers, excuse me, many other centers have started implementing whole blood in their massive transfusion protocols. So they'll send up a few units of whole blood and some components. Um, and so I think that's really great that it's um, penetrating into other areas of massive bleeding. And we need to study it. You know, we need, we need to show, um, again, in, in these non-trauma patients, the, the, the safety, although the, the, the serological safety that they're not going to hemolyze, which I don't think they will, based on the trauma experience. And then we'll look to outcomes and see if, if we can actually improve them with, with, with whole blood. And particularly these cold store platelets, I think, are very, very exciting. Um, in every in vitro test that we've done, the cold stored platelets have always outperformed the room temperature platelets. Um, and, and I realized that in vitro tests, in particular these in vitro tests, don't really correlate um, or don't necessarily correlate to, to clinical outcomes. But, uh, but for what it's worth, they're all better. And so um, that, that, that is a good suggestion. That, um, and, of course, there was a pilot study uh, in, in Norway of um, – cardiac surgery patients that showed a, a trend towards a reduction in chest tube drainage. So I think everything that we're learning about these cold platelets is just so exciting and so potentially really useful. Uh, and so um, uh, a trial of cold store platelets and cardiac surgery is, is underway or will shortly be underway. And we're going to get some good answers from that too. So um, I think the more that we use the whole blood and the more we study it, the more we're going to understand um, how it can be beneficial for, for bleeding patients. Well, thank you so much for joining us today and helping educate the EMA community here about whole blood and the developments in transfusion medicine. You bet. Thanks for inviting me.